1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. It says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Now, it's one thing to be ignorant, but it's completely different to stay ignorant. And what God's saying here is, you once were a child, and God gave us grace. He was long-suffering, but he saved us, amen? And what he saved us from, we're supposed to come out of. We're not supposed to stay in our ignorant state. Come on. And one of the things that God wants to see in our lives is a progression, a progression towards him, amen? Now, we talked this morning about a progressive step downward from the enemy, <laughs> But now we're looking at a progressive, a progressive state upward from God as God works in the soul of the whosoever. As God works in the soul of the harlot or the drunkard or the thief, amen, or the murderer, as God works in the soul of the whosoever, he expects them to move from their ignorant state of worldliness and to grow in godliness. Amen? Amen? So God's expectation is that there be growth. God's expectation is that we not remain in our former state of being. Now watch this. It says to, to gird up the loins of your mind. The way that we gird up the loins of our mind, this is a, a picture of um, when they would gird up their loins is when they would take their robe and they would tie them up so that they could run. Kind of part it and make shorts out of it. So when the Bible says to gird up the loins of your mind, it speaks about keeping your mind sharp and ready to roll in God. Amen? not having a dull mind. If God tells us to gird up the loins of our mind, he is not meaning we should fill our mind with just whatever, just passing time, just filling it with all the junk and filth of the world, but we are called to keep a ready mind. And if we're not keeping a ready mind, you're not going to grow. It doesn't work by osmosis. If you put your Bible under your pillow at night, unless you're Finnis Dake, you're not going to wake up the next day and have it memorized. Now, amen? It's going to take steady pursuit of God's presence. And I'm here to tell you tonight that God's calling you back to a simple faith of pursuing his presence. There's a, a time in our, all of our lives when we get caught up in doing stuff. Amen? And then we fail. But I want you to know tonight 
God is calling you back to a simple pursuit of his presence. Nothing on God's green earth will touch your soul like God's presence. God's presence is what you're missing. God's presence is what will change a life. God's presence, when you've been in the presence of God, whenever Moses went up, you know, whenever Moses went up and he got the, the two tablets of stone and he had been with God, he had to put a veil over his face because he shone. Because he had been with God, he had been in God's presence and it changed him. You can't fake that. You can't imitate that. And that is what your soul longs for. Those of you that have had God touch you before, that's what your soul craves. And yet we try to fill it by doing this, that, or the other, for the good or for the bad. But it is God's presence that we need. And so when the Bible tells us to gird up the loins of our mind, it is to keep our minds locked and loaded on pursuing God, not allowing ourselves to get caught up in the trifle issues of life. It doesn't do anybody good to win an argument on Facebook. I've never heard of one testimony of somebody drawing closer to God through winning an argument on Facebook. But I have heard, I have heard people getting hurt through those things. Amen? The trifle things of life, TV, social media, just the world, just the world, just not doing anything, coasting, coasting. God didn't call you to coast. God called you to pursue. There's no neutral. If you're not front sliding, what are you doing, church? Now watch this. Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Be sober. Now, if somebody's drunk, it don't do any good to tell them to be sober, right? It's going to take a while. But you know, sometimes, sometimes you can get into a place where you've just, if, if it's God that you're pursuing, God that your soul longs for, but you've allowed yourself to get careless and get caught up in the trifle issues of life, Republican, Democrat, saints, cowboys, Allow yourself to get up, all up in the cares of the world. Sometimes you hear that still, small voice of God telling you, you need to sober up. You need to come out from those trifle things and get back in that secret place with God. That's what your soul craves. That's why you're not satisfied. That's why you're not happy like you used to be. That's why you don't have joy. That's why. It's not because you don't have enough friends. It's not because you don't have enough money. Sometimes the most loneliest and poorest folks have been the most joyful folks. 
It's not because you need more friends and more money or better clothes or a nicer car. That's not what your soul needs. Your soul needs God. And God's telling us to sober up. Quit drinking off the world. Come drink from him. Amen? Come drink from him. Be filled with the spirit of God, right? Be filled with the spirit of God. Don't be drunk on wine, but filled with the spirit of God. This soberness is an alertness, standing watch over our souls. Soberness, standing alert, watching over our souls. Does it, does it concern you? Does the state of your soul even concern you? So, let's move forward. It says to hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope to the end for the grace. Now, as we continue in this, I want to show you a connection. There, the, 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 the front of this passage talks about girding up the loins of your mind, being sober, and here's the main part, hoping to the end for the grace that's going to be revealed, the revelation of Jesus. Hoping for what? The grace. The grace. Okay, not being like you used to be. And look at verse 15. But as he which has called you is, I know we're not supposed to say that word in church anymore, holy. It's like repent or sin. But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation because it's written, be ye holy for I am holy. All manner of conversation means God's expectation for us is that we live a holy life. When he says all manner of conversation, he's not simply talking about the words coming out of your mouth, but the way that you live your life. That everything that you do from the time you get up to the time you come home, not just at 1045 on Sunday morning, but that all that we do be done under the glory of God as a life lived holy. God's calling us to live holy lives. Now, holiness simply means cut away, cut apart, set apart. When God calls us to live a holy life, it means to live a life that is separated from the world. From the world. A life that is separated from the world. A good picture of what holiness means is when you're cutting up vegetables and you separate the good part from the bad parts. You move one to the one side and one to the other, right? You don't mix all the good and the bad up. Well, that's what it means in Hebrew. When you separate the good from the bad, that, that's holy. It's a good part. And God's calling us to separate, cut off. Some of us need to cut off some stuff. 
But God's calling us to bring that lever down and cut off and separate from the world and live a holy life unto him. But there's this holiness that he's called us to is inexplicitly and expressly connected to grace. To grace. See, it's the hope of the grace and then he's called you to holiness. There's a connection between these two. And I want to show I want to build on this for just a minute and, and show you this in scripture. So um turn with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Now Here in 2 Timothy, verse 9, it says, it's talking about uh, the Lord, and he says, who had saved us and called us with a holy calling. You know, if God saves you, he saves you and puts his expectation is that you begin to live a holy life, holy calling. Now, you might say, well, how am I supposed to be holy? I'm a coal miner. God can use you. I work in this field. I work in that field. Be God's representative in that field. Be God's representative there. But if you're not living holy, you're not going to be his representative. First step is to set apart, cut off from the world, be separated unto God, be filled with him. Amen? You got nothing to give anybody till your cup's overflowing first. Don't forget that. You got nothing that nobody needs until you're first getting overflowing. That cup's overflowing. Amen? Once your cup starts overflowing, then you got something to pour out into other people's lives. But if you're trying to pour out into other people's lives and your cup's empty, all that's going to happen is you're going to run dry. It's like an engine running without motor oil. It's not going to work long. You can do it, but it's not going to work very long. Amen? That's how folks crash and burn. Even in ministry, that's how folks crash and burn. You begin always giving out, always doing, always doing, always doing, but you're not receiving from God. Just like an engine without motor oil, it's going to lock up on you. It's going to sieve up. All right, verse 9. He called us with a holy calling. How many of y'all, whenever you came down to the front and said, you know, uh, come on down if you want to receive Jesus Christ, they said, all right, now God's called you to live holy. But that's exactly what God called you to. God calls you to come out of the world and be separate unto him. Amen? Amen? So I know a lot of times people don't get told that, but that's exactly what God did. Called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. So your holiness is not about your works. Can I get a witness? Amen. It's not about how good you do it. That's not what makes you holy. It's not about how awesome you are and that you never mess up. That's not what makes you holy. 
What makes you holy is when you live unto God. It's when you live unto God. Even in your failure, you can live a holy life. Not according to our works. So if it's not according to our works, what is it? But according to his own purpose and grace. See that? Holiness and grace connected right there again. He's called you to live holy, not by your works, but by his purpose and grace. By his purpose and grace. Now, let me take you one more place. Hebrews chapter number 12. Going all the way down. To verse number 14. Hebrews chapter number 12, beginning in verse number 14. One more connection, and then and then I want to show you something. It says, Follow peace with all men. And holiness. Without which no man shall see the Lord. Do you think that people that are unwilling to live holy lives are going to get a surprise? It says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Come on now. Let's reason with God. Let God be true and every man a liar. God said that without us following peace with all men, and holiness, we won't see him. That's going to shock a lot of folks. But let's look at verse 15. There's a connection. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now stop right there. How is it? Now we got three passages. Holiness and grace connected, working in conjunction. Working in conjunction. Let me tell you something about grace. Grace is God's ability to empower you to live a holy life. God's grace it's unmerited favor if you look it up in a dictionary. But what is unmerited favor? It's God giving you something you don't deserve. But what is it that he gives you? It's kind of like manna. What is it? It is whatever you need. And grace is the ability to live for God when you normally don't have that ability. Because when we come to God, there's a deficiency. We've been places we shouldn't have gone. We've done things we shouldn't have done. And if you've been perfect since you've been saved, just think about before you got saved, okay? We failed. And we went to Calvary. And God's grace made the difference. God's grace brought you into his presence 
and God's grace cleansed you and set you free and made you a new person. God's grace gave you an ability to stand up and to worship God with your hands raised when you don't deserve to. And nobody that's ever been saved ever deserved to get saved. But it's by God's grace that we are and we can worship him. It's by God's grace that we can be worshipers. So God's grace is an empowerment. God's grace is an empowerment to live righteously. It's an empowerment to live a holy life, a victorious life. It's an empowerment to live for God, giving you the ability to do that which you normally don't because you're deficient. But, but, grace doesn't give you a license to sin. But, grace does not give you a license to sin. Let's look at that in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Romans 5, verse 20. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to share with you three passages that just connect the dots in Romans 5 and 6. So first off, we're going to look at Romans 5.20. Then we're going to go to 6.15 and then 6.22. We're just going to hit the high points. It says in verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound. There's a lot in that that some folks need to digest. The law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You see, where sin was, grace came. Where sin was, where our deficiency was, grace came. Amen? Now look at Romans 6.15. Let's look at 14. It says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Would you raise your hand right now? Say, Sin shall not have dominion over me. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. If you come to Jesus, you're not under law. God got you by grace. You went to the cross and you received grace and grace is how you live from that point forward. You didn't get to Jesus because you started living right. You got to Jesus because he gave his life on Calvary for you and you received it. Grace is how you got Jesus. And grace will sustain you. It's how you live what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law? Well, if we're no longer under the law, the law doesn't have a hold on us anymore. Nobody's going to stone us for doing this or not doing that. Since we're not under the law anymore, does that mean that we can sin? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. God forbid. 
God never authorizes sin. God never approves of sin. We're not bound by sin. God's grace, God's grace will move you away from sin. It covers your deficiencies, but it empowers you to move away from those deficiencies. Last one in this section, 22. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness. In the end, everlasting life. Do you see the connection now? There's a little bit of a connection that a lot of people have missed is grace and holiness go hand in hand because where God gives grace, he expects holiness. And no man can live holy except by God's grace. It's a circle that takes you right back to the cross. Grace and holiness work in tandem. You want Jesus? He's going to give you grace. But when he gives you grace, he calls you to holy, life, to holy living. And you can't live a holy life except by his grace that's empowering you, which leads you right back to the cross. So many of us, we get wishy-washy on one or the other. So many of us, we think that we can have God's grace, grace to get saved, but not calling us to a holy life. God didn't save you so you could live in adultery. Amen. He didn't save you so you could be a bank robber. Amen. He didn't save you so you could be a murderer. Amen. If he saves you, he saves you to set you free from that which was holding you in bondage, to give you a new hope, a new future, to give you eternal life, and a holy life, a new life. And the only way, and here's the other side of the spectrum, the only way you can live a holy life is not by sticking your nose up in the air. Sticking your, you know, if you think of a holy life, you think of, you know, somebody with their nose stuck up in the air that thinks they're better than you, that's always telling you you're going to hell. But a holy life is a life that is set apart from the world, empowered by leaning on Jesus. Empowered by leaning on Jesus. Lord, give me the strength to walk away. Give me the strength to turn it off, Lord. Lord, give me the strength to do what I know I've got to do. I've got to go give this back, Lord. Or I've got to go take it back, Lord. Or I've got to go do this, Lord. Amen? It's living by leaning on God. I'll tell you a story. John chapter number 8. You can go ahead and turn there. I'll tell you a story. John chapter number 8 in closing. Oh, back under the law. You get caught in adultery, there's a high price to pay. 
Nowadays, you just get to call them your husband or your wife. That messed with me for a while when I first moved to Louisiana. I got to be honest with you. I never met so many folks that told me, this is my husband, this is my wife. Found out years later, it wasn't their husband or their wife. Their husband or their wife was living somewhere else. This was their girlfriend or boyfriend. But when they're living together, they just call them husband or wife. Never, it, it, it just threw me off a minute. But I caught up. Now, whenever somebody says, this is my husband or my wife, I say, where's your marriage certificate? I'm teasing. I don't say that. I, I just say, what, what day did you get married on? <laughs> and they'll, they'll, then they'll start hedging. Well, you know. But wise up. You might get on over me on a few times, but I'll wise up. It's funny. People think that you're not smart, you know. All right. Back into this story. This woman, he's got an adultery. Back then, under the law, it's death sentence. Death sentence. For an act of adultery. Many of us have done far worse. And if we were living under the law, we would be stoned. I don't know about you, but if you've ever seen somebody be stoned, it's pretty vicious. It's actually unmerciful. There's no mercy in that. It's brutal. It, it is. You've ever heard that saying, death by a thousand cuts? Some of us feel that way, you know, when people look at you wrong, do you wrong. Being stoned, it's one after one after one after one rock's hitting you. Boom, boom, and everybody taking turns till you die. Being stoned is brutal, unmerciful. And this woman in John chapter number 8 was caught in adultery, deservedly, under the law, could have been stoned to death. I want to point something out to you. Verse number 10. You see, the Pharisees, all the people with their nose stuck up in the air, they threw this woman at the feet of Jesus. And if you've ever done something wrong, somebody's probably thrown you at somebody else. Maybe not physically. Come on now. Probably behind your back. Well, why is so-and-so be able to do this? Because, you know, she's no good. She does this. She does. So we may not physically throw somebody at somebody else's feet, but we may do it with our words. Being all pharisaical, without physical stones, but with emotional and spiritual stones. Well, anyways, they throw this woman at the feet of Jesus. Let's just think about that for a minute. How many of y'all would love to kiss his feet? 
they didn't. Instead of running and kissing his feet themselves, they throw this woman at his feet, trying to trip him up. Amen? She's been caught in adultery. Well, here's the thing about the law. Where's the man? Where's the man? You said she was caught in the very act. Takes two to tango. Where's the other one? A lot of people suppose everybody in the circle had probably been there, done that in some form or fashion. Because when Jesus said, he who's without sin cast the first stone, not one of them threw a stone. But here's the point I want you to see in verse number 10. Jesus turns to this woman who is rightfully in the crosshairs of judgment. Some of us are right there in the crosshairs of judgment. Even now, guilty, guilty. But Jesus does something amazing. He offers grace. He offers grace to this woman who was caught in adultery. We would relegate her to the back of the bus at best. Well, you can join the church, just sit, you know, in the balcony. Just don't let nobody see you. Right? If everybody in town knew, would you bring them to the front row? Grace does. Grace does. So Jesus does something amazing. He gives this woman grace in verse number 10. It says, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, woman, where are thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. They all walked away. All of them were guilty. None of them had the right to judge her because they were guilty themselves. She said, no man, Lord. Now you're going to watch grace. And now was Jesus guilty? Jesus was sinless. So he gives her grace. He said, neither do I condemn thee. You see, if anybody would have ever had the ability to judge this woman, it was Jesus. He never even looked on a woman in lust. Jesus is the one that said, the law says, right? If you commit adultery, right? But Jesus said, if you look on a woman in lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. See, a lot of people think that Jesus just you know, came to just throw the law in the trash can. No, he actually takes it to a higher place. 
where the law said you can't touch, Jesus said you can't look. Remember whenever I grew up, not to knock anybody, but they used to tell the young guys back then, you know, look, but don't touch. Look, but don't touch. Thinking back on that now, that's pretty unholy advice. Because God said, if you look on a woman in lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. God has called us to a higher, holier life. You see, that's the amazing thing that Jesus does whenever he saves us. Ezekiel talks about he takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. When he saves you, he gives you a new heart, a heart that desires to live holy. And if you're not desiring to live holy, maybe you need to go back to the cross and get a new heart. God, I don't know what's wrong with this thing. I keep wanting to do what I shouldn't do. Read Psalms. That's all that David talked about. Look at Romans 7. That's what Paul was talking about. Keep doing what I don't want to do. See, that is an indicator that God's done something. When you realize that, everybody else just does it and doesn't even realize it. Now, so Jesus had the ability to read her the rights. We agree on this because Jesus was sinless. Here's a woman, quote, unquote, caught in the act of adultery. Have anybody ever had the ability to read her the rights, right? But he says, neither do I. Neither do I condemn thee. Amazingly, there's not a period right there. Even though most people, when they read this story, they will stop when Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee. When Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee, he gives her grace. But then he attaches holiness. Because he says, go and sin no more. Grace calls you to live holy. And you can only live a holy life by leaning on God's grace, which takes you right back to the cross. Grace and holiness are inexplicitly and expressively connected always and forever. If God gives somebody grace, he expects them to live holy. If God gives somebody grace, he expects them to live a holy life. And the only way you can live holy is by God's grace. It's just a connection, a connection that will always be there. Amen? Amen.